We'll be reading this morning from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, continuing our look at the Ten Commandments, and we'll be coming to the Second Commandment today. But let's uh, go back to the beginning here, just to get our uh, sense of the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments to the people of God. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. As we looked at these commandments uh, recently, we had to remember that these commandments were not given uh, in a self-contained unit so much as they were given in the context of redemption, that God was the one who had delivered his people from a hopeless situation, a situation in which the people of Israel found themselves enslaved to a tyrannical Pharaoh in Egypt. And life was miserable. God wanted his people to be in the promised land and he was going to get them there. But only he could deliver them from that bondage that they were in. And so it is in the context of grace that we are given the law. God redeemed graciously Israel from literal bondage and freed them. And once he had done that, once they had left Egypt, he then began to, to instruct them, to teach them how they were to live under the oversight and the love of this gracious God. And of course, we know that that is a wonderful picture of our own deliverance from our enslavement to sin. The only way that we can keep God's commandments, in other words, is by understanding that it is the God of grace who has delivered us from the bondage of our sin and now put us in a whole new situation a whole new relationship where he is our covenant God. We are his covenant people. And so we seek to live and obey God to love him back and to show our gratitude to him, to show our desire to be like him in holiness. So God gives us 10 words, 10 details, if you will, of how we are to love him and how we are to love those around us. As we think about that, keep in mind that that first commandment is really the starting point for everything. 
you shall have no other gods before me. And every other commandment hinges upon, depends upon that. That's the hinge. The Ten Commandments were written into tablets of stone by the finger of God, God's word tells us. It is permanent. It is for everyone. And blessing comes to those who keep the commandments. The commandments serve several purposes. Let's just remember that. They reveal to us our sin. They help us realize where we have broken God's law. If you break a, a, a law in the civil realm, remember that we are told the ignorance of the law is no excuse. But officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was only 30 miles an hour. And the officer doesn't accept that as an excuse, does he? <laughs> Some of us know that from experience. No, God has inscribed his law in our hearts and our very consciences know that we have sinned against God. Even as non-Christians, we realize we feel the sense of guilt when we fail to do the right thing. But the law of God is even deeper than that. It doesn't concern just our outward actions or our words. It includes that, but it also includes our, our motives, our attitudes, the condition of our hearts. That's where all of our uh, disobedience springs from anyway. So they reveal our guilt and they also, as Christians, they enable us, the Ten Commandments enables us to know how to live by uh, God's will. What is God's will for you and me? It's to keep his commandments. It's to love him and obey him. And if we love the Lord, we will obey him as Jesus taught. Now, we look at this second commandment. And as we see in this commandment, it's another commandment that has to do with worship. And you might even want to think of that in terms of a question. You mean there's another commandment about worship? We, didn't we just do that in the first commandment? Of course we did. You shall have no other gods before me. But in fact, the next commandment is telling us more about that very thing. The second commandment builds upon the first. And some church communions, the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans in particular, actually divide uh, or unite this commandment as one. The first and second commandments are, are written out as one commandment. And you think, well, that means you end up with nine commandments. Well, they figured out a way to make it 10 commandments by splitting the 10th commandment into two. But I believe it's better for us, and we've typically seen it this way, and, and Believers and, and scholars of the Bible see it this way, that it's two commandments. Have no other gods. You shall have no other gods and you shall not make a graven image or any likeness of God. The first tells us, the first commandment tells us who we are to worship. The second commandment tells us how we are to worship. And there's a distinction that can be made. Who to worship, first commandment, how to worship, second commandment. Now, I think this is just uh, from my own experience, I suppose, but it seems to me that this commandment 
They're all hard to obey, right? Once you understand what they're really saying, uh, you begin to realize, how can I keep that commandment the way I'm supposed to? But the second commandment, the more I look at it, the more I feel like I, this is one that I really, really struggle to grasp. What is it really telling me? What is it really telling me? Because I don't go around carving images of God. Well, we'll look at that and we'll see. The first, the, the second commandment, it tells us about worship, how to worship. And what it's really telling us is this simple way of putting it. It's really telling us that worship is fundamentally a spiritual activity. It's a spiritual endeavor. The physical representations of God here are forbidden because we are to focus on the spiritual realities of who God is and our relationship and connection with him. There's a comprehensive list given here in verse four. It's God's way of saying nothing is to be uh, developed as uh, some kind of, of representation of God. And so he, he covers here basically everything the people of Israel would have known about. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything Stress that word, anything. And then he says, wherever it is, anything in heaven above, in earth beneath, in the water under the earth. Well, that pretty well covers everything. Don't worship me by means of a likeness of anything. There are people, of course, who say, but, there's that, but, Using objects that I can see helps me think about God who I can't see. And so there's this constant sense of, of thinking that we can have aids to worship, that I've got to have this object that reminds me of God or tells me something about God to help me to worship. Now, there was a Puritan preacher once who said, Yes, and being with another woman can remind you of your wife. So the idea here is that just because you have an object that reminds you of God or tells you something about God doesn't mean it's a healthy thing to do. Think about Aaron and the golden calf. Over in Exodus 32, Moses had been up on the mountain. The people were getting impatient. And Aaron decides, all right, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so he tells people to take all their gold jewelry and they pile it up together. And as Aaron later told Moses, out came this golden calf. You know, like the golden calf just jumped out of the fire as if Aaron had nothing to do with it. And he indicated, you know, that we're going to take this and have this as our God to go with us and we can see it. But what Aaron was really doing, and I think the people were following his poor leadership at this point, Aaron was saying, look, we're going to continue to worship Jehovah. We're going to continue to worship the true God. We're just using this as a helper, as an aid. 
almost like a mascot, a representation of something else. And of course, Aaron and the people were severely judged for that. Read on in Exodus 32 and you see that. Look, any depiction of God is going to be an automatic failure. Whatever you do to, to depict God in, in itself, it's never going to be sufficient because God is infinite. God is spirit. And we can't possibly adequately convey the greatness of God by reducing him to something other than what he really is. We want to see God in all of his greatness and all of his glory. And though we're limited in how much we can do that in this fallen world and our sinful lives, we can do it truly, however. And we can grow in our awareness of the greatness of God when we worship him as we ought. Trying to use an image is going to also mislead us into thinking that God is is something that he really isn't. God doesn't, as someone put it well, God doesn't want us to, to look in worship with our physical eyes so much. He wants us to listen. He wants us to listen to his word. Since we live in an image-oriented time, we have to be especially careful about how we worship the Lord. The, the, the whole dependence on images for us in many ways is, is, is dangerous. We have to be careful about how we use images. You know how this works when you see pictures uh, of, of situations that can be misleading or even um, a video. You see a little snippet of a video and somebody says, look, this proves so-and-so. But if you were to get the whole video, the whole situation, it might present a completely different, different interpretation of what you're seeing. And then there's Photoshop, where you can make something look completely different. You can alter someone's appearance by Photoshopping. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of depending on the visual is limited at best. Now, God wants us to use our eyes. God, God uh, give, gave us artistic gifts and beauty and all that. He's going to do that with the construction of the tabernacle here in the book of Exodus. But he doesn't want representations of himself because what we see is doomed to failure. And so we have to focus on the fact that worship is spiritual. And that's what Bible, the Bible teaches us that. Remember, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. She was all focused on where to worship. And he's saying, no, no, it's how you worship. Where you worship is secondary at best. It's immaterial in a sense. It's, it's how you worship that matters. God wants our hearts. He wants us to to set our spiritual vision upon him. 
All of us break this commandment in one way or another. We may think we don't do that much anymore. I, you know, I don't, I don't carve images with my knife. I don't uh, construct statues or things like that. But there are those who do in one way or another. For instance, a use of a crucifix or icons or statues, and we're talking about worship here, or anything that's not specifically authorized in the word of God. And it's at this point that we might be able to explain as Reformed Christians why we don't include other things in our worship that many churches do, such as drama or dance. The word of God doesn't authorize that. And then there's mental violations where we can break this commandment with our mental concepts of what we think God is like. John Calvin said very astutely, I think, that the mind of man is an idle factory. An idle factory. And with that mind of ours, if we're not careful, we can construe God in ways other than what he's really like. And one easy way we can do that is by pitting one of his attributes to the neglect of another. We can be so focused, for instance, on his love that we tend to minimize, if not neglect, his justice. That's just one example. But you could take any of God's attributes and, and think of how we can overstress over one at the expense of the other when they both are perfectly uh, in sync, if we, say, we could say it that way, uh, in God's character. And what about pictures of Jesus? Pictures of Jesus that uh, we can see... Uh, whether it's uh, in a sanctuary like this or in Sunday school books or in any number of ways, uh, videos, films that have come out with Jesus, depicting Jesus. I think we, I don't know this, of course, we haven't been there yet, but when we get to heaven, we may be surprised that Jesus is not white, that he doesn't have dark hair and and look like all the pictures that we've seen. <laughs> I always have a problem with the videos of Jesus because, you know, every little nuance with Jesus had been that way. You know, and I, I just don't want to go there. I want to focus on the written word. Worship is to be word-oriented. Word oriented. And by that, in Reformed worship, we, we sometimes simplify the, what that really means is, is, to me, helpful. See the Bible, the scriptures in everything that we do so that we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, 
and we see the Bible in the sacraments, that's the one way that we, we really focus our vision in, in terms of what the sacraments represent. But all the things we do in worship are to be saturated, shot through with scripture. Worship the Lord according to his word, worship the Lord by the use of his word, because that's the one direct tool that God has given to us to reveal his truth and his will for us. Now, a number of years ago, a long time ago, decades ago, uh, I served on the board of Great Commission Publications. And many of you know Great Commission Publications uh, is a joint venture between two Presbyterian denominations, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian Church in America, us. And serving on that board, uh, there were six people elected to serve from the PCA, six people elected to serve from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And we would meet together. Back in those days, their office was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So we would meet. And at that particular time, the big issue they were dealing with was pictures of Jesus in the Sunday school curriculum. How do we deal with that? Most Sunday school materials uh, have to have depictions of Jesus in their uh, accounts of the stories in the Gospels. Well, this is an unofficial, depending on my memory here, which is not a good valid source of confidence, but uh, as I remember it, the, the, the bottom line in the decision making was that uh, we do not want to give uh, any clear sense of what Jesus looked like. They are talking only about Sunday school, not worship. But they wanted to, to minimize that as, as best as they could. Indirect pictures or pictures that, that give you some idea that there's a face there, but doesn't give you much to go by. Uh, and maybe that was sort of a compromised position. Uh, there's lots of debate always, especially in Reformed churches, about how can you handle the fact that he really was a human being without breaking the second commandment. And I suspect that debate will not end before Jesus comes back. It's something we have to think through carefully. And I think it's usually much wiser to be cautious and careful rather than to sort of leap out there and think we can go beyond that. That's where we uh, have to end the debate at this point right now. But the question here is the spiritual, the spiritual component uh, uh, or spiritual essence of what worship really is. Are we worshiping God as he directs us in his word? Are we worshiping God faithfully, both privately and publicly? Is our worship spiritual? Are we too dependent or are we dependent on external things to enable us to worship him aright? What does this commandment tell you about your worship right now and the way that you worship privately, the way you worship publicly? Is it, according to the word of God, is it 
from the heart, is it pleasing to God? Now, the other thing I wanted you to notice here is that there is a powerful reason for this commandment. A powerful reason is attached here for this commandment. And it, we begin reading that uh, in verse five. And notice, by the way, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That's what worship is. It's what you, it's what you submit yourself to, bowing down, not literally as so much as in your heart, you are, you are humbling yourself before the Lord, acknowledging that he is Lord of all. And you are his creation. You are created to glorify him. You bow down to him and you serve him. What am I using my life for? Who is, who, to whom am I offering my life as a sacrifice of service? It's the Lord. So you shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then he says, for I, the Lord, your God, the covenant God, is a jealous God. Sometimes when people read that, they go, huh? God's not jealous. That's a terrible thing. We're not supposed to be jealous. Well, as we think about this, remember what I just said about the fact that this is a covenant situation here, as everything is in our relationship with God, but we tend to forget it. There are covenant ramifications to what he's going to say here. God is jealous, and because of his jealousy, he is going to uh, both judge those who are breaking this commandment, and he's going to bless those who keep this commandment. Jealousy. By that, God is demanding exclusive worship of him and him alone. And he does that for good reason. A husband does not want to share his wife with another man and vice versa. A husband is jealous for his wife. That's an important preposition. A husband is jealous for his wife. He is bound in a covenant relationship with his wife and she is with him. And that covenant is one in which we noticed this our last time when we looked at the first commandment. That covenant is one in which the, the husband says, forsaking all others, I'm taking you, you and you alone. You are my spouse. You are my wife. And wife says, you are my husband. You and you alone. And so there's a jealousy there that's, that's uh, proper. And uh, it's, it's uh, significant as well as proper, proper. And so is our relationship with God. It's a covenant relationship. As Christians in this era, now that Christ has come, we are the body of Christ, but we are the bride of Christ also. The bride of Christ. And we want to be faithful to Christ. And God is, is, is uh, jealous that we do so, that we stay faithful to him and we love him and serve him and him alone. God will not share his glory with another. Twice in Isaiah, 
We read that Isaiah 42, 8 and Isaiah 48, 11. He says, I will not share my glory with another. He doesn't want any mixed situation where, oh, we've got God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible as our God, but we've also got some other things that we just can't let go of. And we like them so much. We were will, are willing to depend on those things as much as we do God. We add other gods to the true God, which we talked about last time. And of course, God is saying, no, I'm the only God. He really is the only God. You understand that? There is no other God. People invent gods, yes. But the God of the Bible is the everlasting God who created everything, who rules over everything, and who is the only one that can make us right. And that's why he wants exclusive worship. He deserves exclusive worship. And so God says here that he's going to curse those who break this commandment. That's how important it is. Think of how powerful this is at the middle of verse five. Visiting, that means coming to judge. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Adding unauthorized aids to worship is an indicator of hatred to God. A lot of people will say, I don't hate God. Well, you do if you are denying him, if you are believing that he doesn't exist, if you are disobeying him. There's no middle ground. Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me. He didn't offer a third alternative. There is none. We either love God or we hate God. Hatred doesn't necessarily mean boiling, seething anger. It means uh, lack of complete love. There's either love or there's hate. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. God is not only a jealous God, he's one who hates. That is, he is totally opposed to iniquity and sin. And you think, well, well, wait a minute. It says here that God's going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. For multiple generations, third and fourth generation. And so the question arises with a lot of people as to whether or not God is saying that children have to pay for the sins of their parents. The simple answer to that is no. That's a simple answer, isn't it? <laughs> I can understand that. No. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Now, I know there's always a danger of jerking a verse out of context, but that whole chapter is dealing with the soul that sins shall die. And what God is telling us is, you're not paying for the sins of your fathers, but you are suffering the effects of the sins of your fathers. The impact of the sins of earlier generations can often influence those of the following generations. 
But then there's the, the whole point of uh, the positive side in verse 6. In contrast to what happens to those who break this commandment, verse 6 says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And notice how it extends even further to thousands or to a thousand generations, it might be translated. And of course, he doesn't literally mean a thousand. He's just saying for a very long time. That's how the, that term is used in the Bible. He says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Notice how those are linked together at the end of verse six. Those who love me and those who keep my commandments. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And so what he's promising here is a spiritual dynasty. A covenant continuance where God's fam family under God's blessing will see those spiritual blessings into their children, their children's children, and for however long it shall go. That doesn't mean that children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are all automatically saved. We don't believe that. When we baptize infants, we try to make that clear. But it does mean that they're going to be exposed to the gospel. And that's the fertile soil in which the covenant blessings of God can grow and be fruitful. Parents, consider the profound obligations of bringing up your children. Profound obligations with extraordinary promises. How you do that, how you bring up your children will impact not only them, but the generations following them. Every individual, of course, is responsible for their own sin. But again, what kind of climate, spiritual climate, are you providing for your children? Let me give you an example here. Many of you are familiar, of course, with Jonathan Edwards. Arguably the greatest theologian that uh, America has produced. And it was amazing that God brought him into this world right at the time when America was being born. And so he was one of the principal preachers that God used to produce the Great Awakening, where many thousands of people were converted through the gospel preaching of Edwards and others. Jonathan Edwards and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. I just want to tell you about their, their spiritual dynasty, if you will. And for one hour before dinner each night, Jonathan would help the children with their school lessons, and he listened to their adventures of the day. And at the conclusion of that, he would pray a blessing over each child. Every house, Jonathan Edwards said, every house, and I think this is an echo of what Martin Luther said, every house is a little church. Every house should be a little church. 
And so he was often, as you might well imagine, he was often asked to preach in other places and he would have to be away from his children. But every time he would go somewhere, one of his children, 11 children, one of his children would always accompany him when he would go preach somewhere else. His daughter Esther once wrote uh, in her diary, last eve, I had some free discourse with my father. I opened my difficulties to him very freely and he as freely advised and directed. The conversation has removed some distressing doubts that discouraged me much in my Christian warfare. He gave me some excellent directions that tend to keep the soul near to God, as well as others to be observed in a more public way. What a mercy that I have such a father. And uh, the Edwards children, as things turned out, uh, all came to know the Lord as well as their own posterity. But now, in contrast to that, to show you what God is saying here in Exodus 20 about showing mercy to, and love to many and hating those who don't worship him as, he, as they should, here's an example of one who hated God, biblically speaking. There was another man that lived about the same time as Jonathan Edwards named Max Jukes, J-U-K-E-S. He was born about 1720. And he was an atheist. He was an atheist who married an ungodly woman. And in 1900, uh, an American pastor did a study on this particular situation. And he traced the posterity of this man, Max Jukes, and, and what happened to his descendants. 310 people died as paupers. 150 were convicted criminals. Seven were murderers, over 100 were drunkards, and 190 female prostitutes. That was Max Jukes' uh, dynasty, if you will. In contrast to that, here's what happened with the, some of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards. 1,394 studied descendants. That is, 1,394 people were descendants of Edwards that we could chronicle and, and know what happened. Uh, one became a vice president of the United States of America. Three were United States senators. Three were governors. Three were mayors. 30 were judges. 13 became college presidents. 65 became college professors. 100 were lawyers. 600 were physicians. 75 military officers. 100 preachers and missionaries. 60 prominent authors, and 80 other public officials. I don't think that was a, an accident. I think that is Exodus 20 in a perfect example. No, that doesn't mean that we should uh, feel bad about ourselves if our descendants don't turn out like that. That would be a very rare thing, but it shows you that they became people who truly sought to serve the Lord just like Jonathan Edwards did. This is a spiritual legacy, you see, that we as parents and grandparents can have. Seeing God's blessings in multiple generations by grace, not because of how good a parent we are, 
But our efforts to seek to be faithful to God, God will honor that and God will bless that. You know how you make out your will, your last will and testament? Your will may concern the distribution of material things, your estate, whatever you happen to have, and how you divvy that up uh, to others after you die. But you know, it is your faith in Christ and your testimony of his transforming grace that's going to matter for eternity. What are you bequeathing to your children, to those that you love? We do not need images of God to help us worship him. Whether it's by means of physical images or mental images, we must reject those in favor of pure spiritual worship. According to God's word, and what it reveals to us about his nature and his will for us. We must keep in mind what scripture does tell us about the kinds of images that are pleasing to God. We are God's image. Think about it that way. In Genesis 1, several times there it says, God created man and woman in his image, in his likeness. You're gonna talk about image Let's talk about the kind that God blesses and God, how God uses that term. We are in God's image, but that image, of course, has been severely shattered due to sin. But the good news is that because of God's redeeming grace in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, that image that has been severely shattered is being repaired as we grow in our relationship with Christ in this life. It's being restored. And one day when we're in glory, it will be completely restored. And we will be like, we will not be the same, but we will be like Jesus himself. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 say that Jesus is the exact image the exact representation of God because he is God as well as man. And that's what we are seeking to be more and more like. God, God calls you today to worship him, to worship him only and to worship him in the way that he wants us to worship him. And in so doing, you will know him more fully and you will love him more completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have redeemed us from the bondage of our sin. We rejoice that we can now worship you in this life, in this fallen world, turning to you, Lord, on days like this when we gather together and also, Lord, in our own private times but we ask you to help us that our worship would become more and more purely directed to you and we would not be dependent on any external things. Things can be uh, useful and helpful in many ways, Lord, but we want to worship you from our hearts and we ask you to help us to do that. We thank you that Jesus 
who is the exact image of you because he is God, but he's the son of God. We thank you that he is our redeemer and our mediator. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.